Uh, welcome to Faith Covenant Church, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And we are glad to have you with us in person today. We are glad to have you with us uh, online today as uh, we are wrapping up a series this week and then starting a brand new one next week. Now, before we, we wrap up this week's series, uh, next week we are going to start a, a brand new series called Hashtag Relationship Goals. And this is going to be a series uh, for folks who are married, for folks who are single, for folks who want to be married, and for folks who want to be single. <laughs> All right. There you go. So, um, so your job over the next couple weeks is uh, just to be thinking about who does God have in your life right now who maybe isn't going to church somewhere, and to be praying for them, and then to invite them out. And there's a digital invite at uh, 4fcc.org slash invite. Out at the Welcome Center in the lobby, there are physical invite cards. And so uh, as we get started today, we're going to pray for our message, but I would, I'd ask you just to, to bring to mind, who do you have in your life who's not going to church right now? And as we pray for this next series, uh, I want to invite you to pray for that person as well. So let's pray together. Father, as we wrap things up in Esther today, Again, we, we just pray for your spirit upon us to speak to our hearts and our minds. We pray that truth written thousands of years ago, that we would see how it's relevant to our lives even today. Father, we pray for the series that we're going to launch next week. More than anything else, when I'm speaking to people, I'm speaking to them about relationships in their lives. And we just pray for open hearts to hear your truth. Father, I pray that you'd have your hands on Ann and that you would create an opportunity where I can invite her out. And I just pray just for her heart that you would even now begin to work in her and make her receptive to you and the idea of coming out here to church. We pray for the people you have placed in our lives, not by accident, but so that we can be a picture of you and your love to them. And we pray for opportunities uh, to share this series with them as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we get started today, uh, we're going to do so with a question. And, and I'll just warn you up front, uh, it's a little bit heavier of a question. So we're going to kind of dive deep right out of the gate here. Uh, we'll let you come up for air pretty quickly. Uh, but we'll just put the question up on the screen here, and, it, and it's simply this, all right? What do you do when your circumstances appear to be dark, when outcomes appear to be bleak, and both God and hope appear to be absent in your life? What do you do when your circumstances just seem dark? when the best possible outcomes seem bleak and God is as hard as hope when it comes to finding either one of them. Now, different people respond differently. Some people lash out. Recently read an article about a man who it, it was something wrong with his health. He could not figure out what was going on. It kept getting worse. He went to the doctor and ran a bunch of tests, and, and the doctor came in, and he said, I, I am so sorry. 
but you, you have rabies, you've advanced far enough in the stages, there's nothing we can do for you. I, the best advice I can give you is go home and put your affairs in order. And he immediately pulls out a pen and a paper and he just furiously starts to write. And the doctor asks him, like, are you beginning to work on your will? He said, no. I'm writing a list of people who I'm going to bite when I get out of here. Right? <laughs> Some people lash out. <laughs> Told you I was going to let you up for air, you know, right? Other people give up. Some people, when life is dark and bleak and it seems hopeless, they give up on faith. They give up on life. They give up on God. And then some people, some people wait. When circumstances are dark, when, when outcomes are bleak, when God is hard to find and hope doesn't even seem to be an option. Even though, even though they cannot see God and what they're facing in the moment, they choose to wait for God to bring reversal and redemption to bear on what they're dealing with. Now, we bring this question up today because this is incredibly relevant to what we're going to look at as we wrap things up with the book of Esther. Now, if, if you're joining us today and you're here for the first time or you've been away for a little bit and you haven't been tracking along with us in Esther and you're going, how am I going to keep up? We've got you covered. As we begin today, we're just going to kind of walk through a Cliff Notes version of the first seven chapters of this book that we spent the last five weeks working through and that you'll be ready to just jump in and track with us through these last few chapters. But the whole book began way back in chapter one with a Persian king named Xerxes who in a drunken rage divorces his wife because she won't do what he says. And, and th that's just you know, how it all launches. Now, Xerxes gets lonely, all right? So for all you married people that want to be single, you may want to rethink that. You know, uh, your spouse might not be the source of all your problems, okay? More on that next week. All right, so, but you know, he, he, he gets lonely, all right? And so his buddies come up with this idea. They're going to have this Miss Persia contest. He'll find a new wife. And of all the girls in the kingdom, he chooses this pretty Jewish girl named Esther to be his next wife. Now, Esther and her uncle Mordecai, they're Jews. They're living in Persia. But they have worked really hard at the beginning of the book not to let anybody know that they are Jewish. They, they keep it a secret. Now, Uncle Mordecai, he works in Persian politics, and he, he works for Xerxes. And he overhears this, an assassination plot against Xerxes, and Mordecai, you know, like, exposes the thing, saves the king's life. But his chance would have it, he gets no reward for that, which was a strange thing, but it's how it turned out. And, and so instead, you know, we saw how Xerxes elevates this guy named Haman into second in command in all of Persia. Now, Haman, if you remember, was an Agagite. Everybody say Agagite. Agagite. Yeah, it should sound like you're mad at somebody or something, right? So it, basically we saw in the beginning of the series that meant that he could trace his roots back to a guy named Agag, an Amalekite king. And we talked about how the Amalekites were this, this race of people who when the Jews were first leaving slavery in Egypt... 
you know, with no provocation, the Amalekites attack them and try and wipe them out and try and wipe God's promises out as well, right? Because if you wipe out the Jews, all the promises that come through the Jews go with them. And so we, we saw how King Saul, you know, decades later was charged by God to, to wipe the Amalekites out for what they tried to do to the Jews, but Saul didn't do that job right. And so you have Haman is there because he can trace his roots back to what Saul didn't get done. So, Haman the Agagite is second in command of all of Egypt. Everybody's bowing down to him, except for Mordecai the Jew, who can trace his roots back to Saul. And when, when Haman finds out that, that Mordecai's dissing him like this, and that he's a Jew, Haman went nuclear. He's not just going to kill Mordecai, he's going to kill every Jew in the known world as well. And he gets Xerxes, you know, to, to sign an edict that gives him permission to do this. And he gets Xerxes to do it without Xerxes ever asking him what race of people he is signing a genocidal edict for. And so, it doesn't look good. Things, I mean, things are kind of bad. And so, Mordecai goes to Esther and he's like, listen, you got to use your role as queen to do something. you got to get the king to relent or, or give us a break or something. And Esther, initially, she says no. It's, there's too much risk to her personally to go into the king. And Mordecai, we saw last week, he gets Esther to realize that to gain the whole world and yet lose her soul, that's really a bad deal. And so Esther decides, okay, I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to go in. I'm going to see the king, and we'll see what happens. So she goes in. The king is glad to see her. And the king says to her, Esther, what is it that you want from me? I'll give you anything. And rather than asking directly to have her and her people spared, Esther says, let me throw you a party and bring your buddy Haman along while you're at it. And at party number one, the king again asks Esther what he can do for her. And again, Esther's like, you know what? Yes, I want something. We'll get to that. Let me throw you another party and bring Haman as well. And so as Haman is leaving party number one, he's on top of the world until he sees that Mordecai guy again. And Mordecai will not bow down, and Haman's furious, and so he has a 75-foot impalement pole erected to have Mordecai executed on as soon as he can get Xerxes to give him permission to do so. Now, up until this point of the story, things look bad for the Jews, for Esther, for Mordecai. For, for the people who are living in this, for the folks who are reading this story up to this point, the, the question of where in the world is God in the midst of all of this is a very fair question to ask. But then suddenly, the, the, almost as if God has been quietly and faithfully working behind the scenes of these circumstances. At this point, the story just takes this radical turn. And, and all of a sudden, you see all of these reversals to what has taken place so far come into play. Now, last weekend, we worked through chapters 5, 6, and 7. And, and we saw a few of these reversals happen, but we didn't call them out as such. And this week, we're going to work through chapters 8, 9, and 10, and, and we will highlight the reversals. We'll call them out as that. But before we get to these last few chapters, I want to finish reviewing 5, 6, and 7 and, and highlight some of the reversals that we saw last week, but we didn't necessarily 
call them such, right? So in between party number one and number two, Xerxes can't sleep. And, and so he has them read his history to him. And as they're reading his history, it just so happens that they read about how Mordecai saved his life. And when Xerxes finds out that he never did anything to reward Mordecai, he calls Haman in. He's like, what, what are we going to do for the guy who I really want to reward big time? And Haman assumes, well, he must be talking about me. And so Haman comes up with his great plan. He's like, you need to throw that man a parade. And so the king says, you know what? You go do that for Mordecai the Jew. And so here you have Haman, who was mad enough to murder Mordecai because Mordecai will not bow down to him. And all of a sudden it's like, whoop, there's this reversal where now Haman is leading Mordecai through the city streets singing his praise to the populace. And so after a day of this, Mordecai goes home in shame. But, or excuse me, Haman goes home in shame. But he's still got party number two to look forward to. And at party number two, the king again asks the queen, hey, what is it you want me to do for you? And this time, Esther answers directly. She's like, I want you to save my life because somebody wants me dead. And I want you to save the lives of all my people because somebody wants all of them dead as well. And when Xerxes, you know, discovers somebody's trying to kill his wife, he is enraged. And when he, when he demands to know who would dare do that, Esther says, well, oh, that would be Haman, <laughs> right? And so, so Xerxes, now he's even further enraged because he realizes Haman duped him into signing a death sentence for his wife and her people without ever telling him who these people were. And so he storms out in a rage, right? And then <laughs> Haman's trying to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to save my life? Because Xerxes is going to kill me. And so, again, Haman, who's mad enough to have an estimated 15 million Jews put to death because one man won't bow down to him, he falls down at Esther's feet. Again, just another, whoop, you have a reversal here. Where he is bowing down at the feet of this Jewess, begging for his life. And so Xerxes comes back in, sees Haman at his wife's feet, accuses Haman of trying to molest his wife, and while he's trying to figure out how he's going to kill Haman for that, his advisors come to him and say, you know, Haman had that big old pole erected to, to execute Mordecai on, and whoop. Now Haman is executed on the pole he meant to execute Mordecai on. So this is where our story picks up again in chapter 8. We read, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So when somebody's executed by the king in ancient Persia, the crown then assumes, they, they, they like confiscate that person's possessions, all their wealth, all their property. And so he, here we have Esther, this young Jewish girl. And you had Haman, who was intent on killing, annihilating, destroying the Jewish people, and then plundering all of their property. 
He was going to line his pockets with the wealth of the Jews who he killed. And all of a sudden, whoop, all of his possessions are now in the hands of this young Jewish girl. And, and the signet ring that Haman had received from the king that was a symbol of the power that he had, the, the, the very ring that sealed the edict that went out to, to, to announce the annihilation of the Jewish people, that king comes off of Haman's hand and whoop, now it goes on to Mordecai's hand. And Mordecai is now going to use that power that he has to, to come up with some way to save the Jews. Because you see, the Jews are still in danger. Just because Haman is dead doesn't mean they don't still have a problem. The, the, the way that edicts worked in ancient Persia is once the king signs this thing, once his signet ring seals this thing, you can't take it back. You cannot reverse it. And so you still have people in the capital city of Susa. You still have people scattered throughout the entire nation who are like, hey, we've got this day that's coming where we get to kill, we get to annihilate, we get to destroy, we get to plunder the Jews, and we're still going to do this thing. It's still out there. We're, we're, we're still chasing it down. You, you see, while, while their version of Hitler, Haman, had been dealt with, his version of the Holocaust is still very much in play. There are people all over this country who are intent on killing God's people and, and in doing so, eliminating the promises that God has made that are going to come through them. We talked about this earlier in the series. What is going on here? This is bigger than just the events that are taking place in Esther. There's, there's more going on here than just a feud between Haman and Mordecai. And instead, we are, we are getting a view into a cosmic battle. This is, this is, this is just one look at a, another battle in the cosmic war, really, that takes place between the forces of hell and the king of heaven. The forces of hell know if we can eliminate the Jews before the Messiah comes, there, there is no Jesus of Nazareth who is going to come and offer his life as an atoning sacrifice for all of humanity. This is just one more episode in that. And so you, you've got these fires that burn hot against the Jewish people. So, so Esther comes, right? She comes again a second time to Xerxes. And we're told this time she comes pleading with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plot that Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Last week Esther comes. She's calm. She's cool. She's collected. She's strategic. She's, she's wise. This time Esther comes. She is throwing herself on the floor. She is begging. She's crying. She's slinging snot. I mean, it's like no holds are barred. You know, she is just crying out to her husband to do something to save her and her people. Now, 
There are few things quite as unnerving and distressing to a man as a crying woman, especially if that woman is his wife. Amen, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah, right? You know, so, so, you know, and this is what Xerxes is dealing with. And, and to some degree, I feel bad for Xerxes because, like, he's caught between a rock and a hard place. I can, like, you can almost hear the frustration in his voice. He says, now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews. It seems best to you. And seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his, king, with, with his ring can be revoked. He's like, Esther, what do you want me to do? There are no takebacks in Persian politics, all right? I can't do anything about this. We can't change the edict that's been put into place. You and Mordecai obviously are really invested in this thing. Write whatever you want. I'll seal it just for God's sake. Stop crying, okay? So Mordecai, he's going to write a new edict then. And, and as he does, you just see one reversal after another. The scribes who wrote Haman's edict, they're called in and the very same ones, whoop, they now write Mordecai's edict. And, and the edict that gave the, the Jews' enemies permission to kill them and to annihilate them and to destroy them and to plunder all of their property, that, that edict, is, it's, it's countered now whoop, with another edict, one that gives the, the Jews the right to assemble, to protect themselves, and to destroy, kill, and annihilate armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them or their women or their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. And, and the ring that Haman wore, that signed his edict, that very same ring, whoop, it's going to sign Mordecai's edict. And Mordecai, who put on sackcloth and, and put ashes on his head when Haman's edict came out, all of a sudden, whoop, now he's going to wear the king's robes. And they're going to put a crown on his head when his edict comes out. And, and all of, all of ci the citizens of Susa, when, when Haman's edict came out, people freaked out. Because they're like, the Jews aren't these bad, they're, they're not a bad people, and if, and if they can wipe them out, they could wipe us out. The whole city was in distress. But when, when, when Mordecai's edict comes out, whoop, the whole city rejoices. It's just one reversal after another. So the day when both edicts comes out happens. And, and again, even though the Jews now have the right to defend themselves, you got this whole group of individuals right there in the capital and across the country who are still intent on, hey, we've got an opportunity to try and wipe them out. We've got an opportunity to take all of their stuff. We're going to take it. And so this day comes, right, when, when you have a group of people who think we're going to wipe out God's people, we're going to wipe out the promises that come with them, and they take it. But even though the, the, the fires that are burning against the Jewish people, those fires still burned hot. Again, you see all these reversals that take place. You know, I, I don't know how much these fires are fueled by something human, something emotional inside of people. I don't know how much this is a spiritual thing going on. My guess is it's, it's a little bit of both. But the folks who thought they were going to take advantage of the Jews got something different. 
Those who hoped to destroy them, here's what they got instead. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. See, in Susa and across Persia, the individuals who thought they were going to put the Jews to death, instead, whoop, they were put to death by the Jews. It was, it was almost a foreshadowing of what Paul wrote hundreds of years later in the book of Romans. Paul said, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Sometimes we like to think these are mutually exclusive when it comes to God. Paul says, behold then the kindness and the severity of God. Here in Esther, it's kindness to his covenant people who are desperate for him to save them. And severity for the individuals who thought they were going to go to war against God and his purposes. So as the book comes to a close, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the province of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the months of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrows, whoop, were turned into joy, and their mourning, whoop, turned into celebration. When the book of Esther begins, and especially during those first few chapters, everything seems dark and bleak and hopeless. And folks are wondering, where in the world is God in the midst of this? But as the book unfolds, we see that God was actually working faithfully and quietly behind the scenes to bring all kinds of reversals and redemption to bear on what at one point seemed hopeless. Now, last week we pointed out that part of the good news of the book of Esther is that the God who we see working quietly and faithfully in the lives of his people then, he is the same God today. And he is still working quietly and faithfully in the lives of his people now. You see, stories of reversal and redemption, those aren't just stories being written thousands of years ago. God is still actively writing those stories now. So before we finish, I want to share one with you. If, if you've been at Faith for a while, you may, you may remember way back in 2019, we did a series on the book of Habakkuk. And in that series, I shared some of the story of my wife's sister, Sarah, and her husband, Dave, and what took place in their lives um, back in the summer of 2018. Uh, my brother-in-law, Dave, he was the director of maintenance at Bear Lake Bible Camp, 
And at camp that year, they're having a maintenance issue with one of their cabins, and the protocol was to crank the heat in the cabin up, like, way up. And so David done that, and he was getting ready to head to church that morning and decided to poke his head in the cabin, just check and see how things were going. And when he got in the cabin, it just reeked of propane. And so Dave aptly figured out, we got a propane leak, and he began to open up doors and windows in the cabin to try and air the thing out before they tried to address wherever the leak was. So as Dave is doing this, um, somehow, we're not sure how, somehow something in that room sparked. And when a spark goes off on a room that is filled with propane, bad things happen. For Dave, it was like being inside of a bomb when somebody detonated it. The, the explosion was, it had so much force, it literally shook the campgrounds. You could hear it from miles away. Now, somehow, Dave managed to drag his body out of the burning wreckage that was once a cabin, but he was burned, 90% of his body was burned. Most of it to 100% thickness. And that began a journey for Dave and our family that lasted about six months. And that ended with Dave dying in the trauma burn center at U of M Hospital. Dave left behind his wife, Sarah. Left behind five kids, 15 to under a year. I remember my, my wife coming in, interrupting me. I was meeting with somebody at church that Sunday. She came in and told me what happened. I remember when we did Dave's funeral in December. That day and that day and all kinds of days in between, if I'm being honest with you, a lot of those days I found myself wondering, where in the world is God in the midst of this? Now today, almost four years later, I have the gift of hindsight. Today I can look back and I can see things today I couldn't see then. In the midst of it, it just seemed dark and bleak and hopeless. But today, as I look back, I can see where God was faithfully and quietly at work. For example, first person on the scene to find my brother-in-law was his best friend, Erickson. And um, Erickson's a firefighter by trade, and so he was the one who called 911 and he knew what to tell them so that they sent a chopper rather than an ambulance. If they'd have sent an ambulance, Dave would have died before he ever got to the hospital. And because Dave got to the hospital and survived for a little bit better than six months, that allowed Sarah to have shared experiences with Jeremy that she wouldn't have otherwise had. See, Dave and Sarah, they were on staff at Bear Lake Bible Camp, and they had friends who were on staff at Upper Peninsula Bible Camp Sarah, uh, Jeremy, and Emily. And while Dave was fighting a losing battle for his life 
and U of M dealing with burns and infection. Emily was fighting a losing battle for her life in another hospital as she was dealing with cancer. And from time to time, Sarah and Jeremy would talk to each other because they both knew what it was like to watch the person you loved most fighting for their life. They knew what it was like to have a God who could do something and for whatever reason that they couldn't understand, he wasn't. Well, eventually, Emily died, and then Dave died. And that gave Sarah and Jeremy a whole new set of shared experiences. This time, they both knew what it was to watch your spouse die. This time, they both knew what it was to live in that whole widow-widower kind of thing. Now, when Dave died, I remember thinking that it was a good thing between the insurance money and the workers' comp payouts and the survivor's benefits that Sarah was going to have enough money to support herself and the kids. Because I, I just figured there's no way she's getting remarried. Sarah's a good girl, but I don't know too many guys out there who are looking to be instant daddy to five kids that aren't his kids. But his chance would have it. Emily and Jeremy always wanted kids. They couldn't have them. Not with Emily's condition. And so when Jeremy and Sarah continued to talk and their conversations evolved from commiseration to genuine relational connection to romantic attraction, Jeremy was thrilled at the prospect of being a dad to five kids. Today, Jeremy and Sarah are married. And Sarah and her kids, who loved being on staff at a Bible camp and who were heartbroken over leaving Bear Lake, they're on staff at a Bible camp. They're living at Upper Peninsula Bible Camp. And five kids who I thought were condemned to spend the rest of their lives without a father in their home, they have a man in their home who loves being daddy to them. And Jeremy and Sarah, who, who wondered, were they ever going to get married again? And if they did, how would their new spouse navigate the reality that they were once happily married and lost someone they loved? They're happily married to each other. They both get it. And, and today, they're able to celebrate together what once was. They're able to mourn with one another over what was lost. And they're able to thank God for what they have now. The God who was at work faithfully and quietly behind the scenes in the lives of people like Esther and Mordecai. He is still faithfully at work behind the scenes in the lives of his people today. No matter what you are going through, your God is working to bring reversal and redemption to bear. 
I appreciate the way Max Licato tries to express this. He writes this. He says, no condition is too dark. No situation is too difficult. No problem is so severe that God can't intervene, overturn, and reverse the course of those events. So let's go back to where we started. What do you do when the circumstances of your life appear to be dark, the outcomes appear to be bleak, and God seems every bit as absent as hope? It's my prayer that rather than be a people who lash out, that rather than let ourselves be a people who give up, that we will be a people who wait. Who wait for God to bring reversal and redemption to bear on whatever it is we're facing. Because if we will wait, it will come. I can't promise when. I can't promise, is it, is it going to come sooner or later? I can't promise, are you going to get to see it in this life? Will you see it in the next? But I promise you, if you will wait, it will come. A day will come where you will be blessed with the benefit of hindsight. And when that day comes, you will be able to look back and go, I couldn't see it then. But I see it now. I couldn't see it then. It just seemed dark and bleak and hopeless. But now I can see how God was working quietly and faithfully. I can see how over time he reversed things. And he brought redemption to bear. As we pray today, we're going to do something a little bit different. If today things are dark or bleak or seemingly hopeless for you, I want to pray for you today and our staff. We want to pray for you this week. And so if you're watching online and you're struggling to hold on, I just want to encourage you in the chat feed, simply write in waiting. Write in waiting. If, you've, if you haven't filled out your connection card yet and you are struggling to hold on, I want you just on your connection card, right in waiting. And this week, we will be praying for you. But as, as we pray today, if you are here in the room and you are struggling, I want to pray specifically for you. And so I just, I want to invite you, this is weird, we don't do this often, I want to invite everybody just to bow your heads if you would, please. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. And if you are struggling to wait right now, I would ask that you just slip your hand up Wait till I make eye contact with you to put it down. As I pray, I want to pray specifically with you in mind. If you're struggling to wait today, just go ahead and put your hand up. I want to pray specifically for you. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the truths we are reading that these aren't just truths for people then. 
They're truths for us now. God, we thank you that you are faithfully, quietly at work in what we're facing. God, I just pray for those among us who are struggling to hold on, that in a way that can only be explained by your spirit and power, that you would do something inside of our spirits, inside of our hearts right now, where we would sense your hope. We would sense your presence and that we would find strength and courage to wait for you to bring reversal and redemption in your time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.